This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Hello and welcome to Bookmark This, a Straits Times podcast in which we talk about books and the headlines and recommend you new reads. I'm Olivia Ho and I'm here today with my co-host Ho Wenbi. Hello. Uh, we're not literally here with each other, of course, because thanks to the coronavirus pandemic, we are both working from home. So this episode, we're going to be talking about pandemic novels. You'd think that people wouldn't want to read about pandemics when they're actually going through one, but for some reason, global sales for these books are through the roof. For instance, uh, Dean Koontz's novel The Eyes of Darkness leapt into third place on Amazon's charts earlier this month because even though it was written in 1981, it features a virus called Wuhan 400. So I, that's weird. I don't know why that is. Some time traveling going on there. Yeah. So, so while we're all at home practicing responsible social distancing, here are some um, pandemic novels to check out. And where better to start than the granddaddy of pandemic novels, The Plague by Albert Camus. So Wendy, would you like to tell us more about The Plague? Yes, it's basically a novel by Camus. She wrote in 1947. It's set in this town in Algeria, which is mysteriously beset by an illness which resembles the plague. So um, at the beginning, rats die into thousands, and then citizens of the town start to fall sick, and they die too. Bubos start to form on people's bodies. So it's a very mysterious illness, and the entire town is placed under quarantine, and um, its citizens have to band together. Yeah, so I actually tried to borrow this book from the library, and I found out that all copies were currently on loan, and quite a number were, yes, were reserved as well. So it was, it was surprisingly popular. Because you would think that in a time of, of a global pandemic, the last thing you want to do is read about disease, read about epidemics, and just wallow in that depressing state of affairs. But actually, people seem to want to, to read more. Maybe it's the effect of having a very enthusiastic English teacher who makes you read all these books on your March vacation, I don't know. So there could be several factors at play. I think it might be because it's kind of giving a voice to what people feel they're going through right now. But at the same time, the things that go on in these books are actually a lot worse than what is happening to us right now. And so it's both comforting and not comforting, if that makes sense. I'm a fan of Hamid's writing and this book, however, I mean, starts off quite slow. Um, I think some readers may be put off at the beginning um, because there's, a, there's an evenness to the tone. And even though horrific things are happening in a book, it's told in a very, in a very calm voice. And um, yeah, so you, you would expect there to be, you know, hugely graphic scenes. People get pulled out by the dozens of hospitals and so on. And, and these are alluded to, but I mean, there, there isn't any of the high drama of Shakespearean tragedy, you know, or sensationalism or violence. It's very... It's surprisingly moderate, the way it's told. There is one scene in the book where the narrator says, um, I think at, at this point the plague has been assaulting the town for quite some time now, and, and he says, none of us was capable any longer of an exalted emotion. All had trite, monotonous feelings. It's high time it stopped, people would say, because in time of calamity, the obvious thing is to desire its end. And in fact, they wanted it to end. But when making such remarks, we felt none of the passionate yearning or fierce resentment of the early phase. We merely voiced one of the few clear ideas that lingered in the twilight of our minds. So one of the things that struck me was you know, the sheer monotony of it all, um, how the days have become simply a series of monotonous nothings. It's very deadening. It has quite a deadening effect. Yes, exactly. Another thing that struck me about this book was how he talks about the idea of history repeating itself, the idea of pestilence repeating itself. So there's one bit where he says, the narrator says, everybody knows that pestilences have a way of recurring in the world, yet somehow we find it hard to believe 
and ones that crashed down on our heads from the blue sky. There have been as many plagues as wars in history, yet always plagues and wars take people by surprise. So he goes on to talk about how ignorance and stupidity may do as much harm as malevolence if people lack understanding. And it somehow reminds one of the situation that's unfolding worldwide when you see how, especially given how scientists have been cautioning governments about the problem of a pandemic for years. There was, there was always the risk of a pandemic like this happening. However, people don't always seem to have taken these fears seriously. So it, it's, I, I don't know, I feel it's really a novel for our times. And just reading it, you see some parallels between what's happening in the real world today and what's happening within the pages of the novel. And there were some allusions, I think, in the novel as well to the French resistance to Nazism and the German occupation during World War II. Um, so Camus was quite consciously drawing on these social issues as well when he was writing this book. What do you think we can derive from the novel as readers in this time? I think one of the, the most poignant parts of the novel, I mean, one of the things that struck me uh, most deeply was this idea that fighting something like the plague or fighting an epidemic is really just a matter of common decency. So we have, so to speak, the banality of good. How it's all about a constant struggle against fighting pestilence or whatever terror might lie out there. Quote the narrator, he says, um, there is no question of heroism in all of this. It's a matter of common decency. I don't know what it means for other people, but in my case, I know that it consists in me doing my job. So it's this dreary perseverance, you know, that uh, the, the sense of um, doggedness, of just continuing to struggle against pestilence, which I found oddly comforting, I suppose. I do want to note that in the book, nearly all the characters are male. And even though it's set in, the, it's set in an Algerian town, there seem to be very few Arab characters in it, or is there any at all? And I find that a bit strange. Exactly. There's only one main female character, and that's the doctor's mother, and she is kind of self-effacing in a way. Yeah. Yeah, she plays this very conventional matronly role in the novel. I don't know. I guess yes. I guess the story is focalized through a very narrow lens. I mean, it's about these wider social issues, but it's told um, largely from the perspective of the doctor and the people he associates with, and it might, be a, it might well be a very narrow circle. Yeah, but, but that's an interesting yes, point. It, Perhaps it is also a novel of its times, which is, you know, the 1940s. Um, well, moving from the 1940s to the present day, there is um, a very millennial apocalypse in Severance by Ling Ma, which, unlike the plague, has a female protagonist and is told from her point of view. So I love Severance, and uh, I feel I've talked about it a lot recently in all my writings. I've written about it like three times. Uh, it's set in 2011, but it features a fungal infection called Shen Fever that spreads out of Shenzhen, China. And in this case, it turns people into mindless zombies that repeat tasks that they used to do every day, which I suppose you can read as a metaphor for millennial burnout. So the protagonist is this young woman called Candace Chen. She's a quiet, taciturn um, drone worker in New York. She works at this publishing firm where she oversees the manufacture of Bibles in China. And she herself is a daughter of Chinese immigrants, but she's sort of distanced herself from China. She can't even really speak the language when she goes over to visit the factories where the Bibles are being made. And when the fever hits the United States, she volunteers to stay behind to man the Manhattan headquarters because she has no family connections to speak of. Her parents are dead. You know, she's 
sort of distance herself from everyone in the world. So she's in fact perfect for social distancing. And so she sets up home in this deserted office as the city outside just disintegrates into apocalypse and everyone flees with the countryside. And she starts this blog called The New York Ghost in which she goes around taking photos of deserted deserted areas in New York, like Times Square and the subway, which actually reminds me of the series that the New York Times did recently called The Great Empty, in which they have photographers all over the world take these um, beautiful but utterly desolate photos of places that would otherwise have been packed with people. So I'd like to read uh, part of the beginning, which begins, after the end came the beginning. After the end came the beginning, and in the beginning there were eight of us, then I, that was me, a number that would only decrease. We found one another after fleeing New York for the safer pastures of the countryside. We'd seen it done in the movies, though no one could say which one exactly. A lot of things didn't play out as they had been depicted on screen. We were brand strategists and property lawyers and human resource specialists and personal finance consultants. We didn't know how to do anything, so we googled everything. We googled how to survive in wild, which yielded images of poison ivy, venomous insects and bear tracks. That was okay, but we wanted to know how to go on the offensive, against everything. We googled how to build fire, and watched YouTube videos of fires being lit with flint against steel, with flint against flint, with magnifying glass and sun. We couldn't find the requisite flint, which didn't know how to identify it even. And even before we tried using Bob's bifocals, someone found a bick in a jean jacket. The fire brought us through the night and delivered us into a morning that took us to a deserted Walmart. We stocked out bottled water and exfoliating body wash and iPods and beers and tinted moisturizer in our stolen jeeps. In the back of the store, we found guns and ammo, camo outfits, scopes and grips. We googled how to shoot gun, and when we tried, we were spooked by the recoil, by the salty smell and smoke, by the liturgical drama of the whole things in the woods. But actually, we love to shoot them, the guns. We like to shoot them wrong even, with a loose hand, the pitch forward and the pitch back. Under our judicious trigger fingers, beer bottles died, Vogue magazines died, chia pets died, oak saplings died, squirrels died, elk died. We feasted. Google always has an answer to everything. Except that the next line after that is, then Google died. <laughs> yes, and, um, <laughs> Except is... when Google is dead. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So I, one of the things that really struck me about Severance, which is written in 2018, um, is the speed and the spread of infection um, is shown as a result of globalization. So I think one of the common trends you see in a lot of these pandemic novels is China is the epicenter uh, of, of the pandemic because uh, it's such a huge manufacturing hub. And uh, it, therefore, it has such so many connections and it spreads elsewhere. And then people in America, if the pandemic, is if the pandemic novel is American, uh, don't take it seriously at first because they think it's a Chinese thing and it's so, so distant, you know. And Candace herself, being Chinese, is sort of in this, uh, she's in this position where she she both acknowledges that it's something she came, somewhere she came from, but yet she herself has tried to distance herself from these roots. And it's only towards the end of the novel where she has these hallucinations of her mother talking to her mother that she sort of begins to embrace that part of herself. Why is it called severance? Ah, so I think that it, it's a pun on severance pay. Uh, I read somewhere that the author mm. herself was inspired to write the book after she was retrenched. 
And at the same time, it's also a pun on isolation or severing yourself from society. And in fact, that's how Candace manages to survive for so long because she's so good at isolating herself and uh, cutting off all these connections to society. And yet at the same time, if you don't have connections to society, that's not viable. It's not feasible in the long run because even the most reclusive humans require some kind of connection to keep going. Yeah. And she has a baby in the novel, doesn't she? Yeah, so she has. So she is pregnant, and she decides to carry the baby. In fact, the reason why she stays at the she chooses to stay in Manhattan even after everyone has run away is because she's been promised this astronomical payout to continue to work in the office. And she decides to take it because she needs to raise the baby by herself as a single mother. The father has, you know, run off and fled New York, but he's a hippie. Yeah. You see yourself as a kind of Candace Chen figure, would you continue commuting to work if things got out of control? I don't know. Um, I feel I identify a lot of Candace because of all her millennial tendencies, and she's so wryly funny that I found it very easy to be in her head. But yet, at the same time, uh, I'm so you know I have my family, I'm very closely connected to people. And, you know, I'm currently on a stay-home notice and it's been a bit tough, even though I do have my family with me. I can't imagine doing it entirely by myself, <laughs> you know, even if I have the entire uh, corner office to sleep in and all of empty Manhattan to run around in. Yeah. Yeah, it's your playground, right? I, I think one of the things I really liked about this book, it's, it's got these wider ramifications and um, it's, it's also about the sense of belonging and immigrant story, you know, your... Um, your your ties with your homeland, um, your new life in New York. Mm. Yeah, so it's about connections and how you break them and how you preserve them. And I think that's a very important thing to remember exactly. in this time or time of crisis where we're all legally obliged to distance ourselves from one another. And now moving back in time again, we have <laughs> the novel that spawned countless Love in the Time of Coronavirus headlines this Valentine's Day. It is Love in the Time of Cholera by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Yes. So uh, moving from Corona to Cholera. For the uninitiated, um, Love in the Time of Cholera is a 1985 novel by Colombian author Gabriel Garcia Marquez. It's set on the Caribbean coast at the start of the 20th century. And it's about how a young man by the name of Florentino Arbiza, how he falls in love with this beautiful young woman called Fermina Dadza. So they exchange a very long correspondence. They write letters to each other. But sadly, she eventually rejects his love and ends up marrying this older, respectable doctor known as Urbino Juvenal. However, that's not the end of the story um, because Florentino decides to spend more than half a century waiting for Femina. But on the side, he continues to you know, um, engage in these, in these romantic dalliances with more than 600 women. So he's quite a, a ladies' man. <laughs> yeah. And um, fast forward 50 years, a now elderly Dr. Urbino sadly falls off a ladder while trying to get his pet parrot off a mango tree. And because he's so old and he falls, he dies. Um, after he dies, after the funeral, Florentino waltzes back into Fermina's life. So they're both old at this point, and he decides to pursue her once again. So that's, that's the story in a nutshell. I think to me, the interesting thing is that cholera isn't the main focus of the novel. It's always in the backdrop. So we know that Dr. Rubino's father, who was also a doctor, died of cholera. 
And towards the end of the novel, the idea of cholera and quarantine does have some bearing on the fates of our two protagonists. And we also see Florentino pining after Femina. He's quite literally lovesick. So in this sense, cholera, or at least the idea of disease, is used as a kind of metaphor. That's it. I think Olivia and I, we're both not big fans of this novel, are we? Personally, I think this book is Gabo's most overrated. My favorite is still 100 Years of Solitude, uh, also relevant to our current times in title, if not in content. But yeah, so Love in a Time of Cholera, I never like it when people think it's this huge sentimental (laughs) romance. It's not. One of his... uh, one of his lovers is his ward, who is very young. She's a teenager. That's uh, that is not on. Um, it's pretty pretty toxic. Yeah. And one of his sexual partners, his former sexual partners, she's murdered by her husband after he finds out about the, their affair. But Florentino doesn't really seem very bothered by that because it's all a name of romance, right? So yes. Um, I mean, that said, I find um, the writing just beautiful. It's it's evocative. It's lush, but. I felt it got a bit tedious after the first 100 pages. That said, there are some pretty funny episodes in the novel. There is one reference to a woman who buries her husband, but we're told that, well, at least now she knows where he goes when he's out of the house. <laughs> <laughs> or at least we know she knows where he is when he's out of the house. And then um, there's another episode in the novel where Femina listens to him urinate through the door of the toilet, and she... And, and then older Femina compares how her then-young lover's stallion stream so to speak, has weakened in old age. So it's so so he kind of treads this line between utter romanticism and bathos. Yes. My favorite <laughs> line my favorite line in this book is when Fermina responds to Florentina's proposal by saying, I will marry you if you promise not to make me eat eggplant. It's such a non secretary And then <laughs> And then she goes on to eat lots of eggplant. <laughs> she decides that well, she actually does love eggplant. It's very tasty. Eggplant is, eggplant is great. Speaking of love at the time of virus, there's another pandemic story of which I'm very fond. Uh, it's An Ocean of Minutes by Thea Lim, who is a Singaporean writer who lives in Canada. It's a time travel dystopian immigration romance. And I know that sounds a bit crazy, but bear with me. It's really good. So it's set in 1981 when a flu pandemic spreads across the world. And in the United States, a corporation called Time Razor offers a way out by sending healthy people forward in time into an infection-free future where they are needed to work and make America great again. So this young woman called Polly is trapped in Galveston, Texas, and she volunteers for Time Razor because her boyfriend, Frank, has the virus. And this is the only way to get him bumped up the list to receive treatment. So she and Frank arrange to meet when she arrives 12 years into the future, but she is rerouted mid-flight, and when she gets there, he is nowhere to be found. And she is now a bonded worker in a bureaucratic dystopia where the United States and America are now separate countries, and she is in the less fortunate of the two. And uh, this is such a hugely original premise. I mean, when I, dis- when I first read the blurb, I, was, I-, I sort of dismissed it, but it turned out to be pretty amazing and it's beautifully written it made Thea Lim the first Singaporean to be shortlisted for Canada's $100,000 Giller Prize even though she didn't win in the end that there's actually not so much focus on the pandemic itself it appears mostly in flashbacks what she's interested in is the aftermath which is the economic dystopia that will follow a pandemic and that's something that we're probably facing in real life if we do enter a recession as a result of COVID-19 so what I really like about it is that she tried to explore immigration, 
by swapping physical travel with time travel. And when Polly first arrives in the 1990s, she's a skilled worker. She's an upholsterer. She repairs vintage furniture for a living.、Uh, but because of a series of very minor missteps, she's downgraded to becoming an unskilled worker. And you know, it's she becomes one of those people that she always thought she would never be, and she always distances herself from. And I think that's something extremely pertinent to think about in this period of lockdowns and closed borders and lost jobs. The way that、um, a crisis like this will de Open the gulf between social economic classes and worsen inequality, and how there are a lot of migrant workers and gig workers who are very badly hit by these slowdowns, and for whom the tiniest error can mean enormous economic cost. Yeah, and Singapore is a cameo in the book, isn't it? Yes, it does. It's the one place that managed to successfully eradicate the pandemic. So I think that Stalin <laughs> shout out to her home country. And so it does this by handing out、uh, a handing out free pharmaceuticals to all citizens,、uh, which is a little like what we're doing now in offering free treatment to most people who have the virus. And it also、mm-hmm. sends medicine to Sri Lanka and Hong Kong, which are the nearest island states with large surviving populations, so that you know it will still have trading partners. Uh, and you know that the economy can continue. So I'm glad to see that at least in this fictional universe, Singapore remains a world leader in virus fighting. Yeah. And speaking of Singapore, there's another novel,、um, Trafalgar Sunrise, which is set in Singapore, isn't it?、Um, an epi-、mm. epidemic novel set in Singapore. Yes, not a pandemic novel, but an epidemic novel because、uh, this is about the SARS virus in 2003. It's written by Danielle Lim, who is the author of *The Sound of Shi*, which is a book about mental illness, and won the Singapore Literature Prize for nonfiction.、Mm. So it's set in Singapore during the SARS outbreak. It's told from the point of view of an oncology nurse called Grace Huang, and、uh, so it gives a fictionalized insight of what it's like to be a healthcare worker on the front lines of an epidemic. So she writes about. Being shunned on public transport, dealing with patients who have to be separated from their loved ones because of the isolation regulations placed on hospitals, and、uh, she watches colleagues fall sick and even die, which is something that did happen in SARS virus. It has yet to have happened now, and I think we're all just hoping it doesn't. Grace is also a former resident of Trafalgar Home, which is a real leper asylum in Singapore. And I didn't know that we had a leper asylum, but it seems to have been buried in history. But in 1897, a lepers ordinance was passed in the Straits settlements, and it allowed the state to detain leprosy sufferers indefinitely in asylums. And in 1926, a small centre with four wards was established for female patients on the Trafalgar Rubber Estate near、uh, Yochukang. And leprosy, even though it's not actually that infectious as people think it is, it used to be throughout history. It's been the byword for infectious disease and quarantine. Like even now, you would say someone is a social leper if they're shunned by society. And Grace has been hiding this her past of this disease, even though she's been cured. And it moves back and forward in time. The novel between SARS and her time in the leper asylum, and even as she's dealing dealing with the SARS outbreak, she's trying to find to help her friend Alice, whom she befriended in the asylum, to find the daughter that she was forced to give up for adoption to protect her from leprosy. And they're both much older women now, and Alice is dying of cancer. But I think it's a really interesting juxtaposition of these two periods of infectious disease in Singapore, and the way that Singaporeans responded to them. It's this 
you know, tracing this history of um, of illness, of contagion, quarantine, and it's as you can tell from the title, it's got sunrise in it. It is event. It's meant to be hopeful, and I think it's also meant to. It's got a very clear motivational slant to it. I think the historical aspect of of this novel is interesting. As you mentioned just now, I don't think many people would be aware that um, there was once a place known as Trafalgar Home, you know, a real leper asylum in Singapore. And the only reason why that is is because uh, there was a medicine created to, you know, to cure lepers. And one thread of the novel involves Grace trying to find out about the history of who cured leprosy, who came up with the medicine. And it's because there's this cure that she's been able to live a normal life and uh, because and so now nowadays we don't really think about leprosy anymore because uh, it's curable and I suppose that looks forward to the future when we will one day hopefully find a vaccine for COVID-19 and you know we will now look back on this part of history as something that you know as a historical event but yet at the same time we should not entirely forget about it like Camille would say we should remain vigilant that there will always be another plague and that it will come back. Finally, we have the best post-apocalyptic novel written this decade, according to me. It's Station Eleven by Emily <laughs> St. John Mandel. I adore this book. Uh, Mandel's latest novel is The Glass Hotel, which is set in the same kind of world as Station Eleven, but it's a kind of parallel universe. It's a bit weird, a bit hard to explain, but it shares a couple of characters, but it's about financial, not viral devastation. Somehow that makes it more depressing than Station Eleven, which despite being about the end of the world as we know it, is actually very hopeful. So Olivia, um, what is the Station Eleven? So Station Eleven takes its title from this graphic novel that is created by one of the characters in the novel. And it's about this, uh, this physicist called Dr. Eleven. He lives in this station in a place called the Undersea by himself. Uh, he's totally alone except for this little dog called Luli who looks like a cloud. And uh, the graphic novel itself is passed between a number of characters and it forms a connection between two extremely disparate characters in the novel. So in the novel, a pandemic called the Georgia flu devastates the world and it flashes between scenes from the initial outbreak and 20 years later where it follows a theatre troupe called The Travelling Symphony. And they move around the Great Lake regions in caravans performing music and Shakespeare plays in settlements that will give them food and shelter. As this is a post-apocalyptic landscape, they are also all trained fighters. They have to carry uh, bows and arrows and knives and they rehearse their lines and play their instruments while being concerned about being attacked by bandits. So they perform in a town that turns out to be a cult, which is held in sway by a mysterious prophet. And he takes young girls to be his wives. And when one of his wives-to-be stows away with the traveling symphony, the prophet's men begin hunting them on the road. So I'm going to read a part from chapter 11, which takes place in the town that we're, going to, that we're speaking of. Uh, the main character, Kristen, is playing the role of Titania in a production of Midsummer's Night Dream. What was lost in the collapse? Almost everything. Almost everyone. But there is still such beauty. Twilight in the Altered World, a performance of A Midsummer Night's Dream in a parking lot in the mysteriously named town of St. Deborah by the water, Lake Michigan shining a half mile away, Kirsten as Titania, a crown of flowers on her close-cropped hair, the jagged scar on her cheekbone half erased by candlelight. The audience is silent. 
Said circling her in a tuxedo that Kirsten found in the dead man's closet near the town of East Jordan. Tarry, rash wanton, am I not thy lord? Then I must be thy lady. Lines of a play written in 1594, the year London's theatres reopened after two seasons of plague, or written possibly a year later, in 1595, a year before the death of Shakespeare's only son. Some centuries later, on a distant continent, Kirsten moves across the stage in a cloud of painted fabric, half in rage, half in love. She wears a wedding dress that she scavenged from a house near New Potosky, the chiffon and silk streaked with shades of blue from a child's watercolor kit. But with thy brawls, she continues, thou hast disturbed our sport. She never feels more alive than at these moments. When on stage, she fears nothing. Therefore, the winds, piping to us in vain, as in revenge, have sucked up from the sea contagious fogs. Pestilential, a note in the text explains, next to the word contagious, in Kirsten's favorite of the three versions of the text that the symphony carries. Shakespeare was the third born to his parents, but the first to survive infancy. Four of his siblings died young. His son Hamnet died at eleven and left behind a twin. Play closed the theaters again and again, death flickering over the landscape. And now, in a twilight once more lit by candles, the age of electricity having come and gone, Titania turns to face her fairy king. Therefore, the moon, the governess of floods, hail in her anger washes all the air that rheumatic diseases do abound. Oberon watches her with his entourage of fairies. Titania speaks as if to herself now, Oberon forgotten. Her voice carries high and clear over the silent audience, over the string section waiting for the cue on stage left, and through this distemperature we see the seasons alter. All three caravans of the Travelling Symphony are labelled as such: the Travelling Symphony, lettered in white on both sides, but the lead caravan carries an additional line of text because survival is insufficient. I mean, that's such a powerful statement, isn't it? This idea that surviving, simply surviving, isn't enough.、Um, I'm kind of reminded of、um, Dead Poets Society, where the the main character talks about how、um, science is what keeps us alive, but the arts are what we're alive for. I think during a time of pestilence、um, or during a pandemic like the one we are facing today, the power of the arts to heal, the power of the arts to inspire, and Provoke thought. I mean, it, it's it's all the more important. And Wenli and I were both arts reporters, and we've seen the arts community in Singapore has been one of the casualties of the coronavirus. In fact, arts communities all over the world, and that's something that、yes. has happened to the arts. Time, time immemorial, since you know there have been plagues. Shakespeare, like、uh, Mandel says, would have had his theatre shut down repeatedly during outbreaks of the bubonic plague, and that's something that's very hard to see. But you know, so what we need to remember is, even though a virus attacks your physical body, there's also the emotional apocalypse that's caused by what we're going through emotionally: isolation, hatred, divisiveness, and grief. And we must remember that at the end of all of this, we need these people, we need the arts to heal these wounds. And that's all we have time for today. Once again, thank you for listening to us, and we bid you stay home and stay safe. We will catch you next time in a better world. That was an SBH podcast by the Straits Times. Find us on Spotify, Apple, or Google Podcasts, or streaming on Google Home. Do feedback to us at podcast.sbh.com.sg. You can also check out more podcasts on various topics at the Straits Times, the Business Times, and Money FM eighty nine point three.